It's Monday 20th of March, and this is a special episode of the Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. With the DOS settling on a hastily arranged takeover of Credit Suisse by UBS, our Economist team held an online briefing to answer client questions about what comes next, including the economic fallout from the turmoil of recent days. Here are excerpts from that briefing. Jennifer McKeown, our Chief Global Economist, leads this discussion with colleagues from our Eurozone, US, UK and markets teams. It starts with Jack Allen Reynolds, our Deputy Chief Eurozone Economist, bringing clients up to speed on the risks around the deal and whether European banks more generally could fall into trouble. What's happened so far with UBS having taken over Credit Suisse to huge discount to its closing price at the end of Friday. But it looks like several aspects of the deal will be subject to legal challenge. One of those is the fact that the shareholders were not given a vote. Another is that the holders of the additional tier one bonds have been wiped out, whereas the equity holders have not been. And there's a loss guarantee from the government, so that leaves taxpayers on the hook for a significant amount of losses, potentially. So yeah, that, that could... That could be the end of it. This this all could go through as as planned, but it looks like this is not going to be the 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 end of the story with Credit Suisse. I guess more generally about what it means for the the whole of the European banking sector. Well, the ECB last week was keen to emphasise that among the banks that it regulates, exposure to Credit Suisse is limited and not concentrated in any particular institution. And more generally, I think there are a few reasons to be cautiously optimistic at this stage. One is that, as we all know, European banks are much better capitalized than they were before the global financial crisis. So if credit risks were to materialize, they're much better placed to absorb losses. It's also true that more banks are subject to regulators' stress tests in Europe than they are in the US, for example. And that applies both both to the European Banking Authority stress tests, which it's carrying out now, but also at um, national level. So in Germany, for example, the national regulator carries out stress tests on it, some of its regional banks. Then on top of that, obviously the, the banks in the US that came under pressure, that was partly because they hadn't hedged their interest rate risk. Whereas we have seen in Europe that there's been a significant increase in banks' interest rate hedging activity since roughly 2021. So that suggests that banks have been preparing for higher interest rates. Then this morning, we've had news from the ECB on the bids for its new FX swap line with the US Fed, which is now available daily, whereas it previously been available weekly. And there, the demand for dollars was almost zero. There was one bid and it was only for $5 million. And you compare that to the last week's operation, and there were bids of almost half a billion dollars. So I guess it's very early days, but that's encouraging that banks aren't suddenly desperate for dollars that they're unable to access in the market. Having said all of that, there is, of course, a lot of uncertainty and we shouldn't be complacent. Credit Suisse is far from the only European bank with profitability problems. And it's also a globally systemically important bank. So it's subject to more regulatory oversight than most banks. It's looked like it had high levels of capital and liquidity and a big liquidity backstop from its central bank. And that hasn't stopped it getting into trouble. Reports last week suggest that it was losing about 10 billion francs of deposits a day. So where does all of that leave us? I think, you know, at the moment, it doesn't look like we're in a 2008 scenario, but that doesn't mean that all of these problems are just going to blow over now that UBS has bought Credit Suisse. Okay, thanks. We've had another statement from the ECB today and seemingly a very similar one from the from the Bank of England about the, uh, the SMB's treatment as... Credit Suisse and this 81 issue in in particular, kind of kind of welcoming the action, but at the same time the criticism in in some respects. Paul Dales, what what do you make of that from from a UK perspective? Am I right that the Bank of England statement seems very similar to the ECB's? Yes, it seems that the ECB and the Bank of England are 
are saying the same thing, and that's actually that the treatment of equity and bondholders in the Credit Suisse situation was unusual, and that if there's any need for it in the UK and presumably in the rest of the Eurozone, that they would follow the normal hierarchy. So that might go some way to leaving some of the concerns out there that actually these AT1 bonds are you know, the most vulnerable. They, they're not according to the rules and they, they shouldn't be according to the rules. Okay, so Jonas, how are, how are markets taking this? Are there any surprises there for you? Is, is there some relief following those announcements from, from the Bank of England, the ECB? So I think a lot of what happened this morning was um, driven by the, the sort of the main surprise in the, in the announcement of the weekend, which was this bail-in of the AT1 bonds, uh, even though the equity holders got, well, at least a sort of consolation prize. And I think that created a degree of uncertainty about the hierarchy in the capital and credit structure of banks more generally. But these, you know, the ECB and the BOE are clearly very keen to emphasize that that is not the regular order of things and that's not how they would approach a similar situation. So I think that that's helped. And I guess, you know, more broadly, you know, there's definitely positives and negatives from the situation. But the big positive is that, you know, it looks like they've managed to sort out, you know, the, effectively the failure of a, of a globally systemic bank, the, the first one for a decade and a half since that designation was invented, I should say. And they've done so in a relatively orderly way. I think that's a big positive. Now, that doesn't mean the problems are all over. I think we, we still have the uncertainty about whether there are other banks in Europe that could get into trouble, as, as Jack mentioned. And of course, there were also not unrelated, but, but, you know, separate problems over in the US and the regional banking system in particular. So I think the ball is now maybe back in the, on the other side of the, of the Atlantic in terms of how things develop from here. Okay, Vicky, so how do you think it will, will pan out? What's to come next? Well, I mean, it's obviously still all really uncertain. We might get lucky and maybe this is the last significant institution to get into trouble. Even then, I don't think we're going back to a situation of, the, of a month or two ago. I think we will continue to see this general re- reduction in risk appetite and that will feed through into a tightening in credit conditions more generally and, and in turn that will weigh on economic growth. And so the, the downturns and the recessions that we already thought were likely over the coming months will probably be a bit deeper. And I think the risks in the housing market in particular are quite significant from all of this. A worse scenario is that we we do see more institutions get into trouble and we just lurch from one crisis to the next, even though policymakers have now given a fair bit of support in terms of liquidity assistance. I think it's, you know, there's no one obvious like Credit Suisse who might get into trouble next. But, you know, one the problems we've had from SVB and UK pension funds last year, they've all highlighted that it's pretty hard to see exactly where the next problem is coming from. Obviously, we think the, sh- the shadow banking sector is, a, is maybe a, an area to watch. I think even if we do see more financial institutions get into trouble, I don't think, you know, we're still fairly confident we're not, we're not heading for a repeat of the 0708 global financial crisis. I think there's a number of reasons to be a bit more, a bit reassured about that. You know, on the face of it, banks are, are much better capitalised. We haven't seen such a big run up in debt, not as much dodgy lending. So, so we're not, we think we're not looking at another Lehman sort of crisis, but there would obviously still be significant economic fallout. And in that sort of scenario, then we'd be looking at much more severe economic downturns than, than we've been expecting up till now. And Paul Ashworth would like to bring you in now, terrible timing for the Fed just ahead of its meeting. Where, where do you think it, this leaves the Fed? What are the chances of a hike at this meeting, do you think, and what goes on for the rest of the year? A client has asked in particular whether the Fed will be publishing dot plots, so perhaps you can cover that too. Uh, yes, we haven't had any indication that it won't be 
providing the normal interest rate forecast. So I suspect that we'll continue to publish those. Uh, it doesn't really change things, anything that's happened with Credit Suisse over the weekend at all. The market pricing is still mixed on whether we'll see a 25 basis point rate hike from the Fed. Right now it's 51% in favour of a hike and 49% in favour of no change. We think on balance that's probably just about right. The Fed will prioritise monetary policy in the fight against inflation and press ahead with a 25 basis point hike albeit that's smaller than the 50 basis point hike, they probably would have gone with if we hadn't have seen that collapse in SVB and Signature Bank, simply because the economic data, including the inflation data, has been so strong. Thanks, Paul. There's a few questions on currencies here for you, Jonas. One is simply what are the implications for currencies most exposed to this? And another more specifically, what, why is sterling strengthening against the dollar? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, currency markets have been really remarkably well behaved throughout the past week and a half since this banking stuff kicked off. You've seen huge shifts in, in bond markets with short-term yields especially falling very sharply, but they've fallen more or less the same across all the major markets, Japan being the exception. And I think that means rate differentials haven't moved that much, so that there's less sort of currency volatility for that reason. The, the other point here is that, well, the, the dollar normally, as the question points to, normally would rally in this situation, but because a lot of the problems with banks are in the US and the perception is that this is the US is more at risk perhaps than Europe. Uh, Switzerland being, you know, Switzerland normally would also be a, a safe haven and the franc has, has struggled a bit over the past week or two. So that sort of safe haven mechanism, if you will, has been offset by a shift in interest rate differentials against the US. The market's now pricing cuts further later this year for the Fed, but they're not in Europe. So that, that swing has been quite significant. And that, I think, helps explain why the dollar has weakened rather than strengthened against other currencies. It's similar to what happened in the early part of the 2007-8 crisis, right? Because it was initially perceived to be mainly a US issue and the dollar weakened over the first part of the crisis before strengthening rapidly. It actually happened briefly in, in early 2020 as well. Again, there was a little rate differentials outweighing safe haven demand before the sort of full-blown crisis took off. And I guess another point here is that the Fed's swap lines that they Jack discussed earlier, they're still in place. So that sort of safety net um, means that, you know, this sort of severe dollar shortage that we've seen at peak points in past crises, this sort of that's been dealt with preemptively. And I think that's another reason why dollar demand isn't going through the roof right now. What does this mean then for, we've touched on the Fed, but what does this mean for other central banks? The ECB has, has just gone for a 50 basis point hike last week. Was that a mistake, Jack? And what do you think it is to come? And I don't know if you want to add something on the Bank of England as, as well, Paul Dales. Well, I think that the 50 basis point hike that it went through with last week was probably the riskiest of all of the available options. It seems to manage it pretty well. The communication was clear that, A, they were raising interest rates because of the inflation outlook, but... They, were, they stood ready to step in and provide liquidity to banks as and when needed. And also an, another crucial part of their communication was that they dropped any explicit forward guidance on interest rates. So they've given themselves a lot of flexibility to do whatever they deem necessary at, at the next meeting. Um, having said all that in the Q&A of the press conference last week, Christine Lagarde did clearly say that provided the pressure on the banking sector doesn't escalate any further, policymakers' intention is to raise interest rates further. I think she said that they've got a long way to go. They also differentiated clearly between their price stability goals, which they'll try and achieve through interest rates, and financial stability goals, 
which they could address, for example, through new long-term refinancing operations, for example, which are now there fixed rate full allotment operations. So banks can take as much as they want at the interest rate that the ECB has dictated. So that's a potentially very powerful tool to provide liquidity to the banks. But as we've already mentioned, obviously all of this, even if it doesn't escalate further, could lead to a sustained tightening of credit conditions. Um, and then in turn, that means that the ECB doesn't have to raise interest rates as far as it would have otherwise. Now, we've got five and a half weeks into the next meeting, so we'll have to wait and see. But one of the crucial data points is going to be the Q1 bank lending survey, which is going to be published on the 2nd of May, so two days before the ECB's policy announcement. We don't know what that's going to show, but our baseline at the moment is the bank is going to raise interest rates again in May. Um, but that's obviously very, very uncertain at the moment. But based on the inflation outlook, at least, it looks like the markets are being quite optimistic that there are no more rate hikes to come. The, the markets are now more or less that the ECB's damp. I think more likely than not, the risks are skewed to the upside that we, we see more, right, more rate hikes than are priced into the market. Okay, so the ECB a fair way off, but not so for the Bank of England, Paul. What do we think that, that they're going to do at their upcoming meeting? Well, I think of all the three major central banks we've been talking about, the Fed, the ECB and the Bank of England, arguably the Bank of England is probably the most likely not to raise interest rates. It has already raised rates quite a lot. And at its last policy meeting in February, it gave some pretty clear signs that it's getting close to a peak if it's not there already. Um, we do think that actually it will just about raise interest rates, but it's a really close call and it might depend on what happens to the inflation figures due to be released Wednesday morning. That might just tilt the bank one way or another. But I think the bigger picture here is that we're getting pretty close to the peak in rates if we're not there already. And so maybe rates don't get to our forecast of four and a half percent at a peak from four now, but we are becoming a bit more confident that actually rates will have to fall quite sharply next year and buy more than the markets currently expect. And that's because if this financial conditioning does weaken the economy, then the Bank of England will have to do something about it at a later stage. That was Chief UK Economist Paul Dales in a discussion led by Chief Global Economist Jennifer McKeown. You also heard Vicky Redwood, our Senior Economic Advisor, Chief US Economist Paul Ashworth, Jack Allen Reynolds, our Deputy Chief Eurozone Economist, and Jonas Goldsman, our Deputy Chief Markets Economist. You can find all of our coverage of this issue on the dedicated page on our website, including the complete recording of this briefing. And for full access to our content, including powerful data and charting tools, check out CE Advance, our new premium platform. But until next time, goodbye. <laughs>